the swinging city, dazzling blur of op and pop, a theme of birds and beetles of half a dozen separate veins of excitement, which has been invaded by everything new and kinky and uninhibited. I did the worst thing that anybody could do, and that was I got pregnant. And this is a swing. I can't remember where, but they got us in touch with an unmarried mother's home. But because I had left a very old building, a big old mansion house, I remember big stones to go home because it was like a prison. It was horrible to my son. I had extreme pressure from that day on to sign these adoption papers. And the thing is, six. he was a beautiful baby, but he went up for adoption. He was born Christmas time. Any sort of knowledge, I would have killed myself. It was that bad. The women you have just heard were all teenagers in the so-called swinging 60s. I've spent seven months researching and meeting with these women and to protect their identities, their words will be spoken by actors. Each of them were pregnant in the decade of free love and for those who were unmarried, in contrast to the image most people have of the 60s, there was a high price to pay. For them, and between 11 to 12,000 other mothers each year, the price was to go to a mother and baby home. This is their story. I got pregnant with my boyfriend. He was up and running before the words. I think I might be pregnant were out of my mouth. I was utterly, utterly terrified. It became apparent to my mother that I was pregnant. It was a hellish night. The boyfriend was called in with his parents and we sat in a corner like two whipped dogs while they discussed over our heads what was going to happen. We had no say in it at all. The next day, my mother took me to the doctor. The doctor didn't even speak to me. He just confirmed the pregnancy and said, I will contact social services and you can take her to see a moral welfare worker. Medical perceptions of unmarried mothers stemmed from psychological research in the 60s. In 1961, an influential psychiatrist, Dr John Bowlby, director of Tavistock Clinic, argued that it is emotionally disturbed men and women who produce illegitimate children of a socially unacceptable kind. Another psychologist, Dr Donald Guff, also based at Tavistock Clinic, echoed this ideology and claimed that illegitimate babies were the living proof of his mother's severe emotional difficulties. And I went to social services and this moral welfare worker said, of course, this child will be a child for adoption, no doubt. And she organised for me to go to a mother and baby home on Chapel Town Road called Browning House. And I was only 17. In 1969, I found out that I was pregnant. I was only 16. So me and my dad went to, I can't remember where, but they got us in touch with an unmarried mother's home. They got me into Mount Cross Bramley. I were married. I had my son in Mount Cross. The experience was a good one. I was well looked after. I went to work in 1967, and that was Mount Cross. When I started, it was a home for unmarried mothers run by the Salvation Army. 
my job there was nights. I did that for about six years. So I was there when the adoptions were going on. There was private patients as well. So there was a wing that they have private patients on. And then the rest of the house was the unmarried mothers. Well, my son's dad were married and I didn't know, you see. Eventually a woman at work, she took me to my doctor's and he examined me. And I was seven months pregnant and um, I was only 18. I was 19 when he was born because I had him in St Margaret's or Peddingley. When I was 17, I discovered I was pregnant by my boyfriend. His parents were strict Salvation Army people and they were horrified, as were my parents. They decided I had to be sent away, banished as it were. They sent me to Leeds to this home called Mount Cross. I was terrified. The homes these women worked or had their babies in were in Leeds. In Leeds alone, there are at least three mother and baby homes, Mount Cross, Browning House and St Margaret's. Each of them run by a different denomination of the Christian faith, Church of England, Catholic and Salvation Army. Mother and baby homes were a place where unmarried pregnant women went for 12 weeks six weeks prior to having their baby and six weeks afterwards. Mother and baby homes date back to the 1920s and were seen to replace the workhouse as a refuge for fallen women. During the 1960s, there were 172 mother and baby homes in England and Wales run by religious organisations. In some of those homes, the heavy workload the women had to undertake was seen as a policy to reform the residents' values and attitudes to life. We were expected to work each day. They worked in the kitchen and helped cook meals, and some of them learned how to cook and that. We were basically little skivvies. Scrubbing floors, polishing things. We had to do all the housework. We used to do all the mending for the house, the sheets and stuff like that, but it taught them how to sew. I was put in the laundry, which was no washing machines. Scrubbing nappies, scrubbing sheets, boiling them up, hanging them on numerous lines from six o'clock in the morning until about four o'clock in the afternoon. It was only the house laundry. They made you get down on your hands and knees and polish floors. But it wasn't overexerting. And they had you doing jobs right up until giving birth. And that was their way of paying their keep. We were treated not very well at all. I just felt that even me going on a night, talking to the girls, looking after the babies, I was doing something to make their lives a bit easier. They hardly spoke to you. We were scum, really, and we were made to feel that way. The girls got the same maternity treatment as what the private patients did. Our staff were brilliant. They were kind to me. There were only one or two of the Salvation Army people that were nice, but the rest of them were draconian. You were down there and they were up there like gods. I didn't feel as though you could wander about. Because they used to search the room sometimes to see if there were anything we shouldn't have. You weren't allowed to have sort of makeup, perfume, anything personal. One of them particularly seemed quite brusque with the girls. And I can say without a doubt that every single one of them was frightened. I was having pains in my back. Then my waters broke. We were told to wear a wedding ring when we went into labour. 
and give birth to my son. And I give birth to my son. And I had my son. Mother and baby homes were a total institution. The women worked and lived in the homes. They had to follow strict routines. Once they had given birth to their child, authoritative control tightened and routines became more rigid. We were allowed to see him first thing and feed him and change him and then at dinner time and then at night time. That was all. We got up in the morning at six o'clock. We went into the nursery and fed the babies and changed them. Then you went and had your breakfast. Then you were allowed to go back and bath them and dress them. Then you didn't get to see them again until the evening time. It was timed. As I say, I was breastfeeding, but it wasn't breastfeeding on demand. It was breastfeeding every four hour. Each time you would go up to the nursery and take your baby and take him back to the centre place, the central room where we all nursed at the same time, then bath the baby and had a little bit of time with them. We went into this room where we all fed them, changed them and bathed them. You weren't allowed to go into that room. It was like the door without testing it with the was behind lock and key. You were hurried all the time. Come on, hurry up, hurry up. That child has had enough. Come on, burp him, put him back down again. I had done a lot of knitting when I was pregnant and that was given in to the central pot, if you like. And he wasn't allowed to wear his own clothes. It was just what you were given. Even though I'd spent love and care on doing those for him, you know, perhaps it was a ploy so he didn't get too attached to them. I don't know, but it didn't. It wasn't the case. Every single one of those girls loved those babies. For the married women who were paying to use the homes as a private birthing facility, life after giving birth was very different. It was with me all the time. I'm not sure whether he went away at night to give me a, a night's sleep. I can't remember because I was feeding him myself. But it was certainly there during the day, all day. It was extremely difficult for an unmarried mother to keep her baby. In most cases, the child was put up for adoption or the mother had to marry the child's father. Dr. Bowlby gave the recommendation that illegitimate babies were probably better off adopted. At this time, the National Council expressed concern that unmarried mothers were coming under pressure to adopt, even from doctors and nurses while in the hospital giving birth. And I gave birth to my son. I had extreme pressure from that day on to sign these adoption papers. And the thing is, being there for six months, I'd seen so many girls that were there for six weeks only go through this trauma of the adoption day. 
There were various papers to sign and I actually questioned the validity of those now because then the age of consent was 21 and I was only 17. So in fact, any papers I signed should have been countersigned by someone over the age of 21, a guardian or a parent or something like that. It was just sign this. It wasn't a matter of sitting down and reading things and explaining things to me. Or, are you sure you want to go ahead with this? It was just, there is something for you to sign. You were marched to the Colonel's office soon after I had my son and she said your parents have made it very clear that I think the best thing for all concerned is for your child to be adopted. Here is the paper. Just looked at her and you know, that's not a very good time to do that because when you've just had a baby, your head's not in the right place. Then again, the Colonel wants to see you. So I went in and I sat down. Now are we going to be sensible at this and sign the papers? And the captain, she was an horrible little woman. She was in the kitchen and she would say horrible little remarks like, have you come to your senses yet? You've got to get back to your life. You've done this thing and brought this child into the world. You have got to give it a good start in life. What start can you give it? You've got nothing. It was horrible little digs all the time, but I wasn't going to give in. I think it was six weeks after they went that they had to sign the adoption papers, but they never got to see their baby in that time, so it must have been really, really hard for them. I wouldn't have liked it to be me. After six weeks, if the adoption papers were signed, the babies were removed and given to their new adoptive parents. When they came to get the babies, there used to be one bedroom at the top of the house and they all used to crowd into it because they could see the people getting out of their cars and then they saw the baby being taken away back into the car and that was the only contact that they had. I don't think anybody knew that they did this. I think it was something that they all sneaked up to do. They knew one baby was going for adoption that day and they'd all go see what they could see, saying, you know, in case it was their baby. And they were heartbroken. On adoption day, we all had to be locked upstairs, in the bedroom, out of sight, and these great big cars turned up and the girls had to see their babies being taken out. They were hysterical. And we all cried for them. So we all knew this was our fate. We didn't see no new parents coming in. They closed it off. And what was really cruel was they would bring the clothes the adopted parents had brought in and make the mother dress them in these clothes, which I thought was awful. That was heartbreaking, you know. And believe you me, I can still hear those sobs. It was sobs and screams and kicking the wardrobes and, you know, beating their head against a wall. It was awful. It was awful. Oh, you'd have the tears. The baby was going up for adoption that day and you would have the tears and she'd be sat feeding it on a morning, crying her eyes out. I saw a lot of heartbreak. It was like the baby went one day and the same afternoon the girl went back home or whatever. Because you never saw the mothers once the babies had gone. It was awful. 
and then at eight weeks, five days, I walked into the nursery and found my son missing. I thought that someone had picked him up, that he'd been crying or something like that. And until the matron said, right, that's it, get your stuff, your mother is outside. And I went downstairs in a daze, really. And my mother was waiting at the door to pick me up. And she drove me to Round A Park. She got out of the car and she made me walk. She said, right now, get it out of your system. And of course, I started crying and screaming and tearing my hair. She let me go on like that for about half an hour. Then she said, pull yourself together and we will never speak of it again. It just happened. I just kept him. I went back to work when he was seven weeks old. My mum looked after him. He lived with my family. When I were in the place, my mother, she decorated all the bedrooms and they got me a cot and she got me a silver cross pram, which were, were two pounds in them days. So we didn't have a lot of toys. But my first wages, I remember I bought him a teddy bear out of the little sweet shop. It was in the window. I kept my child. I would never forget. Well, I haven't forgot. I haven't forgotten what them girls went through. Although in my case, I did escape. But it wasn't very easy because they were determined I was going to sign these adoption papers. My boyfriend then came up to Leeds. His letters were read. He used to write to me two or three times a week. He'd indicated in his letter that he was going to come up to Leeds and they had said, well, he's not going to come either. When my boyfriend came to pick me up, he came up in a taxi and asked the taxi to wait. And I got the baby all dressed up and they said, where do you think you are going? And I said, my boyfriend's come to pick me up. And I picked up my son, picked my case up. My boyfriend came to the front door and picked the case up and the staff were saying, I'm going to get the Colonel, I'm going to get the Colonel. So I just got into the taxi. And as the taxi driver drove out, the Colonel came to the door waving her hand and the taxi driver made a rude gesture to her and said, it's all right, love, don't worry, she can't run very fast. Eventually, my parents allowed us to get married. But when he was born, I just really decided to keep him because my dad said, I've brought three of you up, I can bring another one up. It was that reassurance I got from my dad didn't alter the fact that I had to stay there six weeks and I still couldn't bond with my son at all until I brought him home. It was hard then, but I had a really good dad and he worked. I did meet the baby's father. I ended up marrying him, actually. Not happy. I know that's what happened in them days. It's really sad, isn't it? You get on with your life, don't you? For most unmarried mothers, their only option was to go into a mother and baby home to have their child. Contraception was not available to single women until 1967 and sex education was not allowed to be taught in schools. In most cases, their child was adopted and for those who kept their babies, the memory of the mother and baby homes has stayed with them for decades. The Salvation Army gave an official apology for their role in the mother and baby homes and the adoptions of illegitimate babies. They said, We are deeply saddened to hear of the traumatic experiences that some people endured in the care of the Salvation Army many decades ago. 
We are extremely grateful to those who have shared their testimonies about their experiences. Entering a mother and baby home was often the only option for many unmarried mothers. Many organisations, including the Salvation Army, ran the mother and baby homes with the intention of supporting and protecting vulnerable women and children from destitution. However, we acknowledge that there are some who found their experiences in these homes extremely traumatic and they did not always receive the support they needed and deserved, for which we are deeply sorry. Cardinal Vincent Nichols of the Catholic Church apologised in 2016 for their involvement. The Cardinal said, Practices of all adoption agencies, whether religious, charitable or state, reflected these attitudes and were sometimes lacking in care and sensitivity. We apologise for the hurt caused by agencies acting in the name of the Catholic Church. There has been no official apology from the Church of England. However, a spokesperson from the Church contacted Guardian newspaper in 2016 and said, What was thought to be the right thing to do at the time has caused great hurt. This is a matter of great regret. There has been a movement which calls for the UK government to apologise for the forced adoptions of illegitimate babies called the Movement for Adoption Apology. Sue Armstrong Brown, CEO of Adoption UK said, what happened to these women and their children is heartbreaking and indefensible. Apologising to them is the right thing for the government to do. The government have not given an official apology, but instead responded to the movement stating the government agrees with the committee that the treatment of women and their children in adoption practices during this period was wrong and should not have happened whilst we do not think it is appropriate for a formal government apology to be given since the state did not actively support these practices we do wish to say we are sorry on behalf of all of society to all of those affected we agree that many women were not given the choice to keep their babies. These women did not give up their babies voluntarily and were effectively coerced into agreeing to adoption. No mother should have been forced to give up their child. These practices were wrong and we are sorry to all those that experienced this terrible injustice. We are sorry that unmarried women had to face shame and secrecy, both for having a child and then for having their child adopted. We recognise that unmarried women were punished for being pregnant by those who should have helped them. We are sorry for the mistreatment that unmarried mothers received in mother and baby homes and hospitals. We are sorry to all those that suffered as a result of these practices. We acknowledge the lifelong impact this has had on so many. We offer the deepest sympathy to all those affected.